All right, I'm back with another episode of Systemically Distorted Communication, and today I'm talking about week two of the Chauvin trial. So there's a few big takeaways that takeaways that I had this week uh, while watching the trial. One, George Floyd did have lethal amounts of drugs in his system. Two, Chauvin didn't follow policy in regard to medical help once Floyd was unconscious, and I, I talked about that last week and why I had changed my opinion about this. And three, Floyd was a very high risk for heart problems due to oversized heart uh, and a 75 to 95% narrowing of his arteries, which they testified, uh, one of the witnesses had testified that 75% and higher is lethal and can lead to sudden death. So that was pretty big to me. Before I get going into this, I do want to go over the charges again because one of the biggest problems that I see here is that every time a, the prosecution brings somebody up, the defense does a pretty good job of basically providing reasonable doubt, and that's all they have to do, really. So the jury is going to listen to this. If there's reasonable doubt, then you get an acquittal. So real quickly, I want to go over these charges, and this week it just kind of it, it more so even solidified some of the problems with getting a conviction. So first off, uh, with the unintentional murder. Uh, and I went over these last week very briefly so a, a bit, so I'm going to go quickly through these. Cause of the death of a human without intent to affect the death of any person while committing or attempting to commit a felony offense other than a criminal, uh, and the rest doesn't matter. The, the problem with this is the felony offense. So let's pretend for a moment that Floyd did not die. If, if Floyd didn't die and the officer did this, would the action itself be a felony? I think the answer is pretty clearly no. And it's there's a lot of evidence for this because there's footage of other officers, officers doing the same thing, and that's not a felony. I guess you get into the line of where he continued to stay on Floyd after he's unconscious, and so... Because of the death, then we have this situation. But if Floyd hadn't died, is that action itself? That's the thing. Is the action itself the felony? Or did Chauvin intentionally try to commit a felony, which I don't think anyone's going to be able to prove. So I think this unintentional murder is just impossible to get a conviction on. The next one here, manslaughter in the second degree. A person who causes the death of another... Oh, uh, so going down to the number one, by the person's uh, culpable negligence, whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes chance chances of death or great bodily harm to another. So it doesn't say or consciously. It says and. So that's unreasonable risk. I think there's some unreasonable risk there. But also, does he consciously, so he knows that the act that he is committing is likely to lead to death or could lead to death? And I, th I think they, the defense has gone through enough evidence to show that these situations do happen with other police and even the prosecution's uh, witnesses they bring up on uh, almost all of them. They ask this similar question of, have you been in this situation where you've held someone down like this before? And they've all confirmed that they have. So it causes a problem with that Chauvin, or Chauvin should have known all of these health issues that Floyd had, which contributed to him not being able to handle this extra exerting uh, adrenaline while he's on drugs, which Chauvin also didn't necessarily know. It, it just makes a lot of problems with getting a conviction here. 
So he consciously takes chance of causing death or great bodily harm to another. The, or great bodily harm, there's a little bit more to that, but still, it, this is a hard, a hard thing to prove without reasonable doubt. And the last one, uh, murder in the third degree. So whoever without intent to affect the death of any person causes the death of another pet, perpetuating an act eminently dangerous. So that's a problem. Are you doing an act that is eminently dangerous? I think the defense has shown that not necessarily because even the prosecution's witnesses have said, yes, we have done this before. Though you get in the foggy lines with how long they've done it and once he gets unconscious, not changing uh, to adapt to the situation. So that's where you get into a bit of the sticky area. And one of them even said that they've held, uh, that they may have held someone down for, for over 10, 10 minutes. minutes. So, so it, 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 it's, it's hard, hard to prove this without, with, with beyond a reasonable doubt. doubt. Uh, and, and to, uh, so act eminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life. Got to prove this depraved mind without regard for human life. And I just don't necessarily think that they can. Also, the, the reason I think that's because the defense has also brought up information, uh, brought up points that not only like Chauvin did not use the maximum level of force at several times throughout this situation. So he, he chose to dial it back in certain situations, which poses a problem because you say, oh, well, he's using maximum force all the time when it's unnecessary. He did use a higher level of force at certain times than what was necessary, but he didn't all the time. So that's hard to prove to pray mind without regard for human life because he was obviously taking into account human life at certain points throughout that exchange. So the reason I want to go through those first is because it's really important to understand that if you're listening to the media, you're going to think this is a cut-and-dry case, and if there's no conviction, there's a problem with the justice system. And all of their headlines are pointing out the things that the, pros- that the witnesses say from the prosecution. But there's a whole other side to this, and the media seems to be ignoring those. And in their articles, you, you're going to have the headline, which most people read the headline. Then maybe they read a little bit at the beginning of the article, and then they might get into a little bit of the defense, defense later in the article, which a lot of people don't make it to. So you're running this narrative that this is a cut and this is an open closed case, very simple. The prosecution's destroying it, and a lot of the stuff that the prosecution prosecution brings up is important. That's true, and it does look bad for Chauvin. But then, if you take into account what happens with the defense and the fact that they only need reasonable doubt, it changes it completely. And you're, I don't think you're getting that in the media, and I think it's contributing to what's probably going to happen, which is Chauvin's either going to be acquitted or he's going to get hit with the probably the smallest charge or the least of the charges, and there's going to be riots no matter what, and destruction, and you know even the people that are not out rioting are going to be outraged because they are following this narrative throughout this entire trial that's making it seem like, oh, guilty, 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 guilty. There's no doubt here. But that's just not the case. And so without sitting down and watching eight hours a day of trial, people are not going to get this information because the media sources just aren't putting it out. 
So the first thing I want to get into with this is uh, Maurice Hall. Now, if you remember Maurice Hall, he was the passenger with Floyd on the day of Floyd's death. The girlfriend last week, or Floyd's girlfriend of three years, testified that Maurice Hall was one of the people that they would get their drugs from. Um, and in one occasion, they got those weird pills that made her feel like she was going to die and that they would still occasionally get them from him when they were desperate. The, the jury was not in the room during this, so Maurice Hall comes on, and apparently he's in jail right now, so this is you know him in jail, and he's invoking the Fifth Amendment because nobody will provide him immunity. For me, this says a lot. Now, obviously, if I was one of the jury members, I would not know this, so this is not information they have, so it's not going to be taken into account when they make their decision, but he's saying that because he's not being provided immunities, pleading the fifth, because he doesn't want to incriminate himself, and this is one of the people that was supposed to be brought up from the prosecution, and suddenly, now that the third degree is brought back on, he doesn't want to, and that would point at the fact that he knows that he sold Floyd drugs, he knows that Floyd took those drugs, and he knows that there's a probability that those drugs contributed to his death and if that is the case he can then be charged uh with third degree because of that so he's saying i'm not going to testify he doesn't want to incriminate himself uh but one of the things that you know the defense pointed out is that he does have vital information and that he previously had said that floyd was falling asleep in the vehicle which means that, that would go in line with fentanyl because he was losing consciousness and they were having trouble waking him up. And he is also seen on the video throwing stuff out of his backpack uh, before the police were approaching. So he, he absolutely has information that is vital to the case and he's choosing not to testify. I think that's more for us on the outside, it's more damning for Floyd. But on the inside, I guess if the jury is not aware of this information, it's helpful because the prosecution doesn't want, isn't going to bring him up and have the cross-examination of him. But one thing that is also telling is that the prosecution absolutely could find a way to offer him immunity, and they're choosing not to do it. I, I don't think they want him to testify because they know the information he's going to give is going to be more hurtful for their case than and helpful. All right, I'm going to go to Bradford Langenfield. He was uh, the doctor on scene once Floyd was brought into the hospital. He didn't actually uh, work on Floyd while Floyd was alive, but he came in later. And I think that they had tried to resuscitate him up to 30 minutes before uh, Dr. Langenfield was on the scene. But one of the things that he pointed out that I thought was important was that Anytime that a person is in cardiac arrest, they increase their chance of death by 10% per minute. I think that's really huge because not only was Floyd unconscious for uh, three minutes, and I'm not necessarily sure when the first time his pulse was not found, but not once the paramedics arrived, there was still six minutes before they got the, the, the tube in and got his air flowing with the machine because they, they pull up, they put him in the ambulance, and they take him away. So that's another six extra minutes on top of the 
what, three minutes where he was uh, unconscious with Chauvin. So this also kind of provides a little bit of reasonable doubt that Chauvin may not be 100% responsible, though the first act was from Chauvin. If you have, after Chauvin doesn't have anything to do with him, another six minutes, with it, which apparently would be a 60% decreased chance of revival. Um, it seems like there's that can bring in a bit of reasonable doubt as well. Another thing that uh, Langenfield testified was that, that hypoxia was the most likely cause of death, which is insufficient oxygen. However, then the defense came back with talking about the causes of hypoxia, and one of those the doctor confirmed was meth and alone or fentanyl alone, and the combination of both of them was certainly yes. So uh, he did point out some useful information, but I, 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 think, I think the defense canceled that out with the information they brought up and pointing that meth and fentanyl, which was both found in Floyd's system, are also causes of that same thing of which leads to insufficient oxygen. All right, so the next uh, person that I thought was important was Johnny Mercer. He's a lieutenant, uh, and with and he trains defensive tactics, tactics and focuses on jiu-jitsu. This is kind of going back to the first witness last week, or was it the first? Uh, the, the MMA fighter, I believe, Donald Williams, and I had complained a little bit that he didn't seem like he was being extremely honest. Some of the stuff he said didn't match with my knowledge of martial arts, especially the way that he was describing chokes, and and he refused to say that the choke could come on both sides if you're going to block the blood, and he said based on the angle he knew it was a blood choke, and ever since that, numerous professionals have come out saying, no, this could not, based on the knee, this was not a blood choke, nor... Um, depriving oxygen so I had some troubles with him and that's kind of come out more and more that his testimony is not very useful so in this with Johnny Mercer he also confirmed this even more so he was saying there's difference between conscious and unconscious neck restraint and that uh, when you use your arms to restrict the blood flow you need to do it on both sides and then Later on, there's a medical professional that comes on and also explains that even if the knee had been blocking on one side here, you would still have the other side with blood flow. So that wouldn't cause someone, it would be very rare or unusual that somebody would go unconscious from uh, simple pressure on one of the arteries rather than both of the arteries. Uh, but he did confirm, uh, Johnny Marshall did confirm that Shaman's the move that he was using was not authorized on an unconscious individual. And one of the things that the defense brought up uh, later on was that some of the movements that Floyd had while he was on the ground, even once he was going unconscious, could have been interpreted in the moment as resisting arrest, which the person confirmed that is true. But I'm not sure that I entirely buy that because then there's another three minutes or so while there is zero movement. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know. If you're if you're still under the assumption that he's res, uh, resisting, and Johnny Mercer also confirmed that in this situation, especially you have them handcuffed, they're unconscious, they're not resisting at this point. They need to be put inside recovery as soon as possible, and that the force must be reasonable, and it 
needs to change based on the actions of the individual. Even even if somebody's actions are, are horrific, once you get them subdued, then your actions change a little bit. And then once their actions are even less, so they're subdued and they're not resisting, you have to adjust again. But as you see, from the time they get him out of the vehicle, when he's completely fighting and they put him on the ground and they pressure him, there is zero. There, there is no adjustment in in their force at that point. They just kind of stay on top of him. Some of the things that the some of the things that I think were important that the defense pointed out with Johnny Marshall, though, are they pointed out the difference between a chokehold and a neck restraint. And he said, yes, there is a difference between a neck restraint and a chokehold, which is matches what the experts have said about the neck not the knee not necessarily seeing like it is a a, a choke. And then he asked him, uh, Mersel, did you see Chauvin use a chokehold? And he said no. So, again, reasonable doubt. It, it, these little things are important. He also confirmed that you can hold a, uh, hold until code four, until a scene is, which is a scene that is safe. So, including this includes bystanders that present a threat or a location, for example, on a busy street. And he confirmed this is true. So, if you're on a busy street or you uh, you feel like there is a threat to the situation, you can hold them in that position until the situation is safe. The defense is saying that because of the crowd, it was not safe, or they felt in danger, which could have been, but you, you, you have to be able to analyze a situation. And I know it may be hard in the moment, especially when tensions are high, but you have to you have to be able to analyze the situation a little bit better than that because, like I said last week, a timeline matters, and those people were not acting that way until there was a... Re- Over time, Boyd was not getting any medical attention. They were getting Then the crowd was becoming more and more hostile. But one of the things that the paramedics point... Uh, that the defense pointed out, which I think is important, I, I don't think it's a great argument realistically, but does it present reasonable doubt? It does. When the paramedics arrived, they acknowledged that the crowd was hostile, hostile to the extent that they could not or did not feel comfortable performing medical aid on Floyd in that situation. So instead of giving him immediate assistance, paramedics load him up, they put him in an ambulance, and they delay another six minutes before he actually gets the medical attention that he needs. I think there's a difference Obviously, because the police are there. They have been there the whole time. The paramedics showed up. They don't know what's necessarily going on. They just see a hostile crowd, and they think, okay, this is a dangerous crowd. We need to get out of here. They don't know why the crowd is acting this way. The police, on the other hand, were there the whole time and saw the escalation over time. So these are that's why it's, it's a bit, it's not a great argument because it's two different circumstances, but does it present reasonable doubt? I think it does a little bit, and I I don't know what the jury are thinking. So I can see the reasonable doubt in there. Mercel also confirmed that you can't touch the artery if the knee was placed on the artery. And I think I mentioned this as well last week, that when the paramedic came up, he went and went straight for the artery and was able to touch it, see that there is no pulse, something that... Again, that MMA person said no. Floyd had or Chauvin, Chauvin had not moved at all, and that he was pressuring 
a blood choke, and he was very descriptive on how he knew for a fact it was a blood choke. But the paramedic said, no, I wouldn't have been able to do that if it was a blood choke. And as well, this uh, Mersal said that if the knee had been on the artery, he would not have been able to check the pulse. So he said, and he also confirmed, he said the shin appeared to be across the shoulder way in several photos. So that's another thing that came out this week is there was different angles. And from the per, the bystander's angle, that camera, the knee looks completely on the neck. But when you go to the police cams on the backside, you can see that the, the shin is going across the shoulder and back as well as the neck. So it's like the middle space between the neck and back. And I don't know if it's because of the fold in the neck, um, uh, Floyd, where the other angle looks like it's completely just on the neck, but there's a clear difference in the camera angle and where the knee appears to be. So again, a bit of reasonable doubt. And Mercer also confirmed that he himself has held someone for uh, potentially ten minutes, even in a while waiting for paramedics. So again, reasonable doubt. All right, Jody Steger, I, I think that's how you pronounce the name. I'm not, I'm not certain on the last name. Is a sergeant with the LAPD and was brought over as an expert uh, consultant. Uh, and he pointed out was that how reasonable was force and that they should have de-escalated. So kind of what I was saying before, as, as Floyd's behavior changes, the officer's Behavior has to change, and yes, that can be a high standard at sometimes. But I mean, it's a very difficult job. That's a decision that you have to be able to make, and you have to be able to analyze the situation. And that's some of the training that they get, which others, uh, other witnesses brought up, confirmed that yes, this is in the training, and you do have to know how to de-escalate it as during an active situation as the variables change. But however, one of the problems with the Steger's testimony was that the defense brought up the fact that could Chauvin have used more force? And Seeger confirmed that, yes, he could have used more force if he wanted to. So that point of the fact that Chauvin did take into account human life, and that's going back to the charges that I mentioned at the beginning, if he's not taking into account human life at all, he would use the maximum force all the time, and he didn't. When they were uh, fighting with him in the police car, he didn't. And then also he went to put on the hobble, which I explained last week. The hobble, you take the, the legs and you attach them, you bend them back into the waist around and tie around the waist with a connecting cord so that they can't kick and hurt themselves or other people. And they chose not to use that as well. So they, they did take a step down from... Uh, the maximum force that they're able to use. The next two that I want to quickly talk about is Mackenzie uh, Mackenzie Anderson on the left in the police uniform and Brianna Giles on the right. And these are both forensic scientists. Mackenzie uh, pointed out that there was Floyd's saliva found on pills in the back of the police vehicle. And Brianna Giles confirmed that these tablets contained meth and fentanyl. So that's a big deal. He's got these partially consumed pills, and they have his saliva on them. So that means they're in his mouth. So he was either taking drugs or trying to hide them in his mouth. Who knows what he, he swallowed. And then the uh, 
the autopsy, they did not actually test the stomach contents for drugs, but they said they did not find any partial pills in there, but they would have dissolved. So I don't think that says a whole lot. But this points to the fact that Floyd absolutely did have, you know, more confirmation that he was putting these, either trying to hide pills by putting them in his mouth or eating them as the police approached. All right, for the next one, uh, so with Martin Tobin, I think this one was the most convincing because there wasn't a whole lot that the defense could do to counter what he's saying. But I do think that the level that he was speaking was higher than the average person. And for the jury to really comprehend and fully understand everything he's saying, I I think he could have missed some people because there was some stuff he was talking about that I couldn't necessarily grasp. And I don't think I'm dumb, but I think that he went in real a lot of depth with some things that uh, didn't make sense to me at times. Uh, It's just one of those things where he's so knowledgeable what he's talking about, something to him that's common sense, and maybe something completely new to me that I need a little bit more of a basic explanation of. So I found that as a little bit of a problem with his testimony, but he was very adamant that the cause of death was died from low oxygen, which caused uh, damage to his brain and caused uh, PEA arrhythmia. That causes the heart to starve, and that's a pulseless electrical activity. Uh, and he was able to confirm that he he knows that based on the type of breathing that Floyd was doing. So he watched his breathing in the camera. For me, this is, and I've listened to other people talk about this as well. It that that's a very high level of skill. If you can see someone from a distance and watch them die, and you say that you know exactly what they're dying from just based on their breathing. I think that there's some assumptions here, but he's talking with such certainty, and he's been in this field for so long. He's a sorry, a, a physician uh, that focuses on breathing, basically. Primary area is breathing. He was talking about how Floyd uh, was trying to brace his knuckle against the tire, and he knows that that's an action. He's trying to breathe with his fingers, try to open up his lungs to get more air. And that the way that the back hands were pressed into the back, he knows that that is restricting more air because it's putting pressure on the body, putting pressure into the chest. And that anyone in this prone position already has a 24% decrease in oxygen. And some, something that he also said is that even a healthy person in this position would die. I, I just don't think that's true because I know that I can go in this position. I know that somebody can put their full 100% weight on me with my hands behind my back and put pressure on the back of my neck in the way that Floyd was. And I I know that I'm not going to die. So when he said that, it seemed to me like he's taking the worst case scenario. And all of these things then apply when you think of worst case scenario, what physicians often do. It seems like he's taking the worst case scenario in each one of these examples that he brings up. Because there's also other explanations for putting a knuckle on a tire. Maybe you're just trying to move. Like Maybe when he said that he was kicking his leg up, that's a sign that he can't get oxygen. Maybe he's kicking his leg up for another reason. That, that, but it, it seemed, He was speaking with such certainty that it created a little bit of doubt in my mind that he was being entirely honest. Or maybe he's being, just like I said, taking, taking into account everything to the extreme. But he's talking about it in the extreme like that's the norm, which 
bothered me a little bit. But with some of the explanations that he gave, it was very detailed on how breathing, once you get pressure on your back, how it restricts your breathing, and they showed models, which are very convincing. But, I mean, I just go back to my martial arts experience, and I know with a basic arm bar, which a basic arm bar, you have the arm behind the back, and in Floyd's situation, he had both of his arms behind his back. And then they were using his wrist to torque upwards a little bit. And he's saying that this sort of pressure puts more pressure on the chest and makes it harder to breathe. But that's just not the case. And if you look at the... If if the other officer behind... So there was three officers. There was one controlling the hands in the mid-region, uh, Chauvin towards the head, and the other officer at the legs. When you look at the other officer in the mid-region, he's not... It, he's, it's not like you're in a wrestling match and he's applying downward pressure on the body with an arm bar. That's just not what's happening. He is applying upward torque on the wrist and pushing it forward a little bit, but that amount of pressure on the body as far as breathing is extremely minimal. And I don't see any evidence that shows that that officer in the middle was pressing his body weight in the middle of Floyd. I, I haven't seen anything like that. And I think he's actually resting back on his legs while just holding the wrist in, con- in that control position because the slightest amount of torque that you move the wrist forward, if you were to put your arm behind your back and then have somebody start torquing your wrist up, it's, it's quite painful from a very small movement. And if you're going to put body weight on that, I think you'll do an actual injury to the wrist, which I don't believe Floyd had. And it, I just don't see anything that points at that middle officer applying any sort of downward pressure that is restricting breathing so while Tobin was up on the stand like I said the defense didn't do a great job at at countering most of the stuff so like I said Tobin I do think was the strongest of their witnesses but I just I did kind of fundamentally disagree with some of the stuff he talked about as far as pressure goes uh, just because I, I do think that I'm pretty familiar with weight distribution on bodies and obviously he's much more knowledgeable than me on the aspect of breathing but He's coming to his conclusions about breathing based on assumptions of body weight. And for me, the assumption of body weight is where I, I had the problem. Let's keep in mind that uh, Floyd was, what, 230, 240 pounds, and Chauvin is, uh, what, 140 pounds, plus maybe 20, 30 pounds of equipment, they said. I guarantee if a 160-pound person put their weight on me, and I'm only 175 pounds, there's, there's no way. They can sit on me with their whole body weight and... A healthy person is not going to die from this. And so that takes away credibility when he makes a stern statement that absolutely, yes, a healthy person would have also died from this. And you see numerous cases of the same thing happening with other police, and that's not the case. And then also the defense brought up uh, later on, not with Tobin, but they brought up a case study or a study in Canada with over like 1.1 million uh, interaction, police interactions, and 3,000-something of those. They had the same position with the knee on the neck, and zero of those resulted in death. Uh, So the fact that he's speaking with such certainty throws me off a bit. Uh, So what the defense brought up with this situation was that uh, basically kind of what I was thinking, the level of knowledge of Tobin is much higher than especially what the police would be. And he asked that even in your profession with people with high level of knowledge, when people come in and complaining of a lack of breathing, do they sometimes misdiagnose it because they don't trust what the person's telling them? And this is getting to the point that officers are listening to lies all the time. People don't want to be arrested. They're constantly telling them stuff that's not true. I can't breathe when they can breathe. And people even go into 
uh, into the doctor's office and say this, and they often get or sometimes get misdiagnosed because uh, of various reasons. They didn't go into necessarily why, but either because of other factors, the the doctor or physician, whoever it is, doesn't necessarily believe what they're saying is true for any number of reasons. And he confirmed, yes, this does happen. So if that happens with a level of expert that he is at or his colleagues are at, wouldn't you expect that a police officer who has very minimal training in any medical area would also misdiagnose a person suffering from an overdose or having trouble breathing? I Again, I think reasonable doubt is there. Uh, also, with that, they point out that adrenaline increases the heart rate. So one of the things that Tony was saying that he could count the breathing of Floyd to where he's at the range of 22, which was in a normal range. And so if Floyd had been on fentanyl, it should have been much lower. But the defense points out that adrenaline would then increase. So if Floyd took the fentanyl and he was falling asleep in that vehicle, and then he encounters the police and he starts fighting with the police, even though his heart rate would be very low, through that struggle and through that fight, it would then rise to where you could potentially have a heart rate within a normal range because of his raised heart rate from the low level where it was with fentanyl. Hopefully that makes sense. And oh, and with that, they apparently found a tumor in Floyd, which uh, in 10% of the time it, it can increase heart rate. So that's another factor where maybe his heart rate wasn't as low as it should have been on fentanyl simply because of his medical condition prior or his prior medical condition. Next person I want to talk about is Daniel Eisenschmid. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But uh, he talked about the findings in the blood, which was 11 nanograms per milliliter and uh, metabolite and fentanyl, which is the norfentanyl, which was uh, 5.6 and then meth at 19 nanograms per milliliter. So I'm, this is, I, I don't have a lot of knowledge about this. So I, I did a little bit of research, and then I uh, took it based on what was said in court. So uh, the 11 nanograms per milliliter, apparently over three can be fatal. Uh, but one of the things that they brought up was defense. So 11 nanograms per milliliter is that 50%, about half of the, the people that they deal with, the deaths are above that and half are below that. So this is like a really mid-range area. This is not really saying anything that it's such a high amount that he's certain to die, and it's not saying that it's a low amount that he wouldn't die. It's like right in the middle. But I, I do think it just points out that Floyd was certainly within a range that he could die. So a lethal amount can be three is something that gets pointed out later. And then the uh, and then the norfentanyl with the five point six, this is like the the counter of fentanyl. So when you have the fentanyl in your system, as it degrades, the norfentanyl goes up. So you could argue then that he have, he had even more fentanyl in his system because of the presence of norfentanyl. Also, that doesn't take into account what he may have ingested very recently. So, for example, they found the pills in the back of the police car that had his saliva on them. If he was to have ingested more, that the body did not yet have time to start breaking down, then that wouldn't have 
been shown in the system and it wouldn't have been the norfentanyl levels wouldn't have gone up from that yet so there, again reasonable doubt for how much was actually in a system at the time dr william smock is in forensic medicine and is a police surgeon medical director for the training institute of for strangulation medical director jefferson town medical service and clinical professor um one of the things that they pointed out during him, there's not a whole lot to go into about this, but one of the things they point out when they were talking to him is that the police officers on camera pointed out they could not find a pulse. I don't remember that. I watched the footage. I, I just don't recall seeing that, and I don't recall hearing it in previous testimony, so I must have missed it somewhere because the defense did not fight back on that, and it, it was just they just let it go. So I, I assume it must have happened. And I somewhere I must have missed it. But that does go to the point. If the police actually checked the pulse and they confirmed there is no pulse, that's even that's that then I would say that goes beyond negligence in a in a way. Because you you now confirmed that he doesn't have a pulse and you don't do anything. So to me that's a bit of a problem, but I, I don't know enough about that because I don't remember hearing it or or what the circumstances for that were. But one of the things the defense pointed out with uh, Dr. Smock was that Chauvin didn't block both of the arteries, and he confirmed that it's con- correct, and he even confirmed further that he may not have even blocked one of the arteries, which is along the lines of what I said where the paramedic walked up and was able to check the, the, the pulse without having Chauvin moving. Uh, and with that, one of the things that was pointed out was that Floyd had a 90% blockage of his right coronary artery, which can be lethal. So, and I'll go into this a little bit with uh, a different witness. So now we're getting a little bit more into the, a little bit more of the medical side. And Lindsay Thomas is a forensic pathologist, and she agreed with the cause of death that Baker, who did the autopsy, uh, what he found. So, it's a cardiopulmonary arrest complicating law enforcement subdual restraint and neck compression. So at first glance, this looks bad, and that would be a headline. But they go in and they, they start breaking this down, and you find out it's not necessarily what it sounds like. So she says that the, the fentanyl death would gradually become sleepy, and it doesn't apply since he interacted with the police. Uh, so she was saying with a, a fentanyl death, you would gradually become sleepy. But I don't think this necessarily applies. One, in previously with uh, Maurice Hall talking about, which obviously he didn't testify so the jury can't hear this, but that Floyd was falling asleep in the police and he was trying to get him up so they could get out of there because he was in fear that they had called the police because of the counterfeit. That he would gradually, so she's saying that he would gradually become sleepy and there isn't any evidence of that happening. But at the same time, whether there was or wasn't evidence of that happening, when you get he encounters with police and then a struggle ensues, you wouldn't expect him to suddenly become sleepy in the middle of the struggle while he's fighting police. Um, so I, I don't think that that necessarily applies. I think that's looking at a very strict example of what happens to a typical person when they're sitting there on fentanyl without outside interference. Then, yes, they become sleepy. But then if you walk up to somebody, so, for example, I've been around people that uh, they've been on something before and maybe they're super happy and jolly and then they're 
a symptom of that drug is to be super happy and jolly. And then someone interacts with them in a negative way and maybe does something violent to them. They're not going to continue being jolly and happy. They might be less likely to act aggressively, but depending on what's brought to them, their behavior adjusts to that, no matter what the substance that they're on is. So to say, oh, this person responded by attacking me back, so therefore they could not have been suffering from the results of this drug because the results of this drug is happy and jolly and they didn't seem happy and jolly, I don't think that applies. So that was a very long drug out explanation of why why I did not agree with that. Some of the other conditions that they she points out that are con, that contributed to death: t- arterial sclerosis and hyper. Sorry, I said that word wrong. Hypertensive heart disease, fentanyl intoxication, and recent meth use. So they're confirming that these things did contribute to the death. But she also ruled out that drug overdose was one of the causes. So one of the things that she pointed out that I think countered a little bit of what Tobin said was that in such a stressful situation where you're actually in fear of your life, that your heart is going to be racing. But Tobin said that he counted the heart rate and it's under a normal rate. So wouldn't it be fair to argue that the fentanyl had made his heart rate very low and then through the excitement that it picks it up as well to a normal rate? This seem, That seems logical to me because her analysis of where his heart rate should be in that situation did not match what Tobin said. And so that there must be a reason for this. And I, I don't know enough to know what it is, but that's just my assumption my off of my own uh, ignorance, I guess. And then the, th- the thing with, uh, with Lindsay Thomas, though, is that I feel like the defense completely picked her apart and made her uh, much more of a problem for for the prosecution. So one of the things that he asked, which I thought was huge, was what if you found Floyd in his apartment with the drugs and no police, what would you conclude to be the cause of death? So based on everything you find is the exact same, but there was no police. You just find his body. And she said that they would conclude it was heart disease. I, I think this is a pretty big factor in reasonable doubt because you're saying that this person had all the symptoms necessary to die but it just so happened that he died with police there it's definitely leaving leaving reasonable doubt of whether or not the police this interaction with the police just happened to magnify his heart condition that already existed and therefore because of the stress of that situation he died so I, I think that's a really big factor, and I'm going to go into a little bit of how unhealthy his heart was in a moment. Um, but it was with uh, it was with Lindsay Thomas where they brought up this study of the 1.1 million police interactions that show 3,000 in the prone position, and in those 3,000 there were no deaths. And she had no answer for it. She said, yeah, it's very contrary to what her knowledge is, and she doesn't understand what's different uh, there than in the United States. So basically saying, oh, this was done in Canada and not the United States. And she she just literally had no response for it. Going back to his uh, concluding that he had died from heart disease if they had, he had been found without police, the level of narrowing that's potentially fatal in his arteries is 70 to 75% and above. Floyd 
had in one artery 75%, and in the other, he had 95% narrowing. This is extremely dangerous. So then they go on to ask her, even with no heart issues, and, and on top of that, he has an enlarged heart. I don't know if I mentioned that before, but he has an enlarged heart, which means he needs more blood and more oxygen to function properly, especially in this high-stress situation. So even with no heart issues, they ask her, with the amount of drugs in his system, would you have, and if there was no police, would you have ruled his cause of death as an overdose? And she said, yes. I think that creates a tremendous amount of reasonable doubt. All right, so going into Andrew Baker, he was the uh, the person that conducted the autopsy. And a lot of the stuff that he said just also confirmed what Lindsay Thomas had said. So he talked about how he went through and checked the arteries. There was uh, tremendous narrowing of the arteries to the heart of 75 95%. And he confirmed that beyond 75% can lead to sudden death. One of the things that Andrew Baker pointed out was that homicide is a medical term. So on the autopsy, when he mentions homicide, there's an area of five categories where you choose from. And they went through those and pointed out what each of those were. But he said that homicide is not the same as the legal term of homicide. So when we never naturally see, oh, he ruled it a homicide, that means that he was killed by these officers he said that's not necessarily what that means. The homicide is the fact that other people played a role, which then also led to this death. So it, 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 it's just completely different, which I think is confusing, and I had no idea about that. So with this police interaction, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that him labeling homicide is that the police were responsible, but the police played a role. So because of his heart condition with a 75 and 95% blockage and an enlarged heart, which requires more blood and oxygen, that the increased adrenaline to his system throughout this exchange will make the heart have to work faster, and due to his heart condition, the interactions with the police was too much for him to handle. And that's what he basically said. So I, I don't think there's any way to say that Chauvin could possibly know that he has this severe heart condition, that he has an enlarged heart, he has major blockage of his arteries. So again, reasonable doubt. So one of the things that he did was he didn't want to watch the videos before he did the autopsy. So he, want, he didn't want to have bias in his mind or some sort of preconceived notion of what happened. And when he did that, he pronounced the death due to artery restriction. I think this is how it should go. Like you, you, you look at the case you, based on his job. He's supposed to look at the body and determine a cause of death. And he did that. And he determined it was artery restriction. And, but then on May 26th, so on May 26th, he showed this autopsy, showed no physical evidence that Floyd died of asphyxia. This, and that's before he watched the tape. And then after he watched the tape and then took in the other things to account, then he adjusted the cause of death. That's a little bit, that's a little bit weird to me. And he pointed out that typically there are some sort of bruises or signs in the eyes from asphyxia that he did not see any of those. And he actually took extra care to go in and look at the region of the back and neck and did not find any signs of damage or pressure or anything that he would typically see in a situation where enough pressure was applied to cause this damage. And he also confirmed that putting pressure on the back of the neck is not something that they normally see for strangulation or asphyxiation. 
when he was questioned about whether or not he has determined the cause of death on individuals with lower levels of fentanyl than Floyd, he said yes. And if he found Floyd in under different circumstances, similar to the question that they asked uh, the previous witness, he said it, yes, it would have been ruled an overdose. And he was also asked, would the knee cut off Floyd's airway? And he says, in my opinion, no. So all this is reasonable that reasonable doubt. And I'm not saying right now, I know that all this information that I'm giving is the defendant, and that's because that, I think that's something that people don't hear. They're only hearing about the prosecution. And if you just listen to the prosecution, you think, well, guilty, 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 guilty. But when the defense goes through all these things, it's reasonable doubt over and over and over and over. So... Uh, I don't necessarily, I, well, I know that the media is not being honest about this. They're setting a narrative. They're going with the narrative that everybody wants to hear, and I think it's going to cause serious problems later on, If especially if there is a uh, an acquittal. It's just going to be crazy, not only from the people that are destroying things, but people that just know the headlines that they heard. Well, what about this and this and this and this? Well, they don't know anything about the defense. And when you have... A lot of people on social media, especially saying, oh, we don't even need a trial because we see the tape or we see the footage. This is a problem. Of course you need to have a trial. So again, my takeaways, Floyd had uh, a lethal amount of drugs in his system right in the mid-range. So people have died with much worse. People have died with much less. Shaman didn't follow his policy once he was unconscious. or And with that, Floyd was at a very high-risk category for having heart problems because he had a 75 and 95% artery blockage or narrowing, which I think when you, in, when you have a, then a stressful situation with increased adrenaline, which requires m- more blood, more oxygen, you run into a perfect storm situation like this. So is there reasonable doubt? I, <clears throat> I believe there is. I do think Chauvin is guilty of negligence, though. And I think something should, he should be charged with something, but I, based on the charges brought, I'm not necessarily sure where that charge lies. Uh, If you have any questions or concerns or I got something wrong, maybe I made a mistake somewhere or you see some problems with my analysis, go ahead and let me know. Again, you can contact me on any of my social media. You can go to the link tree that I have here. And you can send me an email at systemicdcommunication at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Systemically Distorted Communication. 